here's something that I have noticed about American Christians. We talk a lot about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We do. I don't know if you've noticed this, but evangelicals in particular, we love to talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, oh, that Jesus, I know him. Now, that's not like if I were to say to you, I, I know Donald Trump, I know of him, but I don't know him. Like, or I know George Bush or Barack Obama, I know of those people, but I don't have a personal relationship with them. I don't know them. Um, and despite the fact that it's supposed to be a personal relationship, the language that we use to talk about that language, uh, to, to talk about that relationship is language of doing. If somebody were to ask the typical evangelical, well, how's your relationship with Jesus going? They, would, they might say, well, I read my Bible this morning. I witnessed to my coworker. I, I went to church. I, and, and so it's verbs, language of doing. Um, if you and I talked about our spouses that way, right? You know, so what's going on? Well, I got to log some time with the missus. People would think, you know... I think you're doing it wrong. <laughs> or if you were to use those kind of verbs when, you know, you're just hanging out with your friends, well, what are you doing? Well, we're, we're just hanging out. It's what we do. We, we're together. That's the whole point. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We're, we're hanging out, right? Um, and so for those of you that are young, for those of you that are young, I want to apologize. If you're here and you're 14, 16, 20, 25 years of age, we evangelicals, have done you a disservice in a sense. Um, for a long time, we have missed out uh, talking about this relationship in a way uh, that would be helpful. Um, it's something that Moses knew. It's something David knew. It's something the disciples knew. Uh, namely, that being with God is everything. Being with God is everything. Now, we evangelicals didn't get here by accident. Um, we, in the late 1800s, got into a pitch about doing stuff for God. And I think this quote from Charles Spurgeon just captures the activity that evangelicals we've been known for, because we want to be busy doing all this stuff for God. He says this, brethren, do something, do something, do something. While committees waste their time over resolutions, do something. And boy, we've been busy doing stuff for God, haven't we? Like, your typical church has stuff going on every night of the week, you know, wanna and this and that, and you need to do some stuff for God, and we, and we do our God stuff. But I want to suggest to you today that faith, a life with God, is so much more than just activities and actions, okay? The disciples, the people who had spent time with Jesus, they were marked as being fundamentally different than other people. Notice this passage from Acts. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training, but they recognized them as men who, what was the phrase here? Who had been with Jesus. With. With is a powerful, powerful preposition. And I want to get into that and un unpack that over the next couple of weeks. Uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. In Genesis, uh, 
Adam and Eve are in the garden and God is with them. Adam walked with God in the garden. God was with Abraham and promised Abraham, I will be your God and I will bless you and all the nations of the earth through you. Um, God was with Joseph. Joseph has all these twists and turns in his story. Uh, He's sold into slavery. He's thrown into prison. And the writer of Genesis puts this in here. The Lord was with Moses. Doesn't want you to forget that no matter how many bad things happened to him, God was with him. And it goes on and on. Um, God was with Moses. Moses protests and says, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? And God says, go for I will be with you. Are you picking up on this? Uh, God was with David. David says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, my rock, my light, and my salvation. On and on it goes till you get to the prophets. Uh, Jeremiah 1, 7 through 9, God is sending Jeremiah to speak for him. And Jeremiah says, I can't, I'm too young, I can't do this. And God says, go for I am with you. And if that weren't enough, it all culminates in the New Testament, right? Because it culminates in the birth of a baby born in Bethlehem. You may have heard of him. His name is Jesus, but he goes by another epitaph in Scripture. And that name is Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel means what? God with us. And Jesus' final words before he leaves are this in Matthew 28. Be sure of this. I am with you, even to the end of the age, okay? In my, in my 20s, in my 20s, I had uh, two different God filters that worked in my life. I had the life under God filter. So um, I, uh, as, an, as a Wheaton student, then in my 20s, I prayed every day, an hour and a half every day. Then I would pray a half an hour with some friends. I'd read my Bible for 45 minutes. I journaled. I did all the things they told you to do. And what that did for me in my heart is that instead of drawing me closer to God, it made me proud. I found that when I would interface with other Wheaton students and other young people, they didn't just love God as much as I loved God. Those losers. And I I was judging them in my heart and the very things God wanted me to be. It was a struggle for me to be. And I... Even though I was winning at doing all the right things and didn't feel like God was squishing me at all, I felt superior to other people around me because of this God filter that I have. Do the right things and God rewards you. Do bad things and you're punished. The other God filter that I had that I got because of the school I went to was do stuff for God. And boy, did I do stuff for God. Uh, I was uh, my Sunday school class coordinator at the First Baptist Church of Wheaton, Illinois. I was in Baptist Student Union. I was a small group leader. Twice a month, I went with a team, and we did a um, worship service for old people in a nursing home. And I could go on and on. That was just some of the stuff that I did, okay? I was busy doing stuff for God. Even in the midst of those two God filters and all that activity, God in his mercy still showed up in unexpected ways, in unexpected places, and I got to experience a life with God, if only for some fleeting moments here and there along the way. And I thought, wow, that's not like the activity. That's not like the classes. That's like, wow, okay? Um, And so God's plan for restoring creation is not about a list of rules or rituals to follow. That's life under God. That's moralism. 
God's plan to restore a broken creation is not about implementing useful principles. That's deism. God's plan for restoring creation is not to grant our desires and give us a genie in the bottle. All right, God, today, this week, I'd like God's plan to restore creation is not getting us to do things for him. And so I want to suggest a way. So I've been drawing these pictures, which, by the way, all the pictures and the big ideas of this series are from a guy named Sky Jeffany, who wrote a book called With. Oh, we're getting to the with today. Yes, we are. So again, because we're Christians, we're going to represent God as a triangle. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, we got that. In a life with God, it's exactly what you might think. With. Together. With. I want to talk about that with you today. And in case you miss things, here's today's bottom line, all right? The heart of our faith is not about rules, rituals, morals, or gifts. It's about a rich and satisfying relationship with God. I'm convinced so many Americans have given up on church and God and organized religion because we've been promoting the wrong thing. If they had a rich and satisfying relationship with God, they wouldn't unplug, they wouldn't run because it's rich and satisfying, okay? So I want to unpack this with you today, and I want to look at a couple of scriptures that I think will be instructive and helpful. So again, this is life with God, with God. The first passage is found in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Jesus is uh, with his friends, so he's just with the disciples, he's not with the crowds, and he's explaining the value of this partially started kingdom of God. Now, in Matthew, kingdom of heaven is the same thing as kingdom of God. I won't get into theology stuff, but just consider it interchangeable, okay? So Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. This is a man that uh, found the mother load, found a treasure. Now, in the first century, it was common to bury treasure in a field. You're thinking, well, that seems strange. That's because you're an American. You go to the bank and put it on deposit, and they'll give you 0.002% interest and give you a credit card and charge you 14% interest. Oh, think about that. Okay, so... We have banks and stuff like that and safety deposit boxes. But back then, they didn't have those. And, and in the Palestine, in the first century, they were used to invading armies coming in. The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. Like, there's a long list of conquerors of this part of the world. And so if you knew an army was coming, you would hide your most valuable stuff in a field and hope for the best. But if you put up a fight with the soldiers... If maybe they wanted to do something you didn't want them to do, they'd kill you. And then where you hid that stuff in the field is gone. No one knows. And maybe the land changes hands a few times. And this incredible treasure of value is sitting in this field, hidden, and no one knows it's there. 
and some guy who's just digging around for God knows what stumbles across it. This is very, very valuable, and it's gone unnoticed. But everything in the world added up together isn't as valuable as this treasure. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3. He says, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Jesus then tells a different parable. It's the same, different story, same point, right? Verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Now, in the second story, this man is searching. We can assume that he's a pearl dealer out on a professional trip, and he's looking for fine pearls to add to his business collection. And unknowingly, unwittingly, without planning to, he stumbles across the mega pearl. And he liquidates everything because he knows the value of what he's discovered. And he leverages everything he has in order to acquire it. Jesus is making a point, and he's making a point about the incomparable value, quality of the kingdom of God. It's worth more than anything that you could possess. Which forces me to ask a question. What is your treasure what would you give everything to possess what would you give everything to possess i'll tell you what i would have given up everything to possess when i was 32 fame i wanted to be famous i would have sold my soul to the devil no i wouldn't have done that but i would have been tempted to and you know the funny thing is if I had gotten it, would it have given me what I was looking for? No. We people are funny, aren't we? What would you give everything to possess? Another weedy, John Piper, whom I disagree with all the time, he puts it this way. I think he gets it right on this one. He says, if we don't want God above all things, we probably haven't been converted. In other words, do we want just what God will give us or do we want God himself? I'm convinced that when you and I see God for who he really is, we'll want him more than we want anything else because God really is that good. Um, there's a second passage I want to call in that I think will help us understand this with part. It's very famous. If you grew up in the Baptist church, you've heard this passage. It's from John 15. I am the So Jesus is having his last night with his disciples and his friends. And when you know death is coming quickly for you, you tend to say things that are important. So that stuff in John 14, 15, 16, 17, that's important stuff, right? I am the true grapevine, Jesus is speaking, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they'll produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. That phrase comes up and up again in John chapter 15, remain in me. So there are a couple of themes in this passage. One is uh, mysticism. 
this communion with God. Uh, and I want to draw another picture because I think this will help. For the longest time, I considered prayer to be something like this. So if God's over here and I'm over here, that's how I thought of it, I'm saying things to God, God's saying things to me. It's communication. And that's how I thought of it for the longest time. Uh, Peter Scazzerzo says that prayer has a lot of different, takes on a lot of different forms. And if you will allow prayer to grow into something that allows you to really commune with God, you move from, uh, you start off with just memorize things. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with me. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We uh, thank thee, O Lord, for the gifts, right? Then you, 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 in this communication way, you start, uh, hey, God, I just really need you today. I, my car broke down. I don't have enough. Like, I only have $200, and it's a $375 repair. Like, I need you to come through for me, God. So it's, you know, request. Typically, uh, uh, my youngest came in my office two weeks ago, and she had spent three days in a row asking me, asking me, asking me, and she stood right next to my desk, and she had this expectant look on her face, and I looked at her, and I just said, are you going to ask me for something? Long silence. She quietly walked out, of the, walked out of the room. It's like, oh, I guess the answer to that is yes. Okay, so, in, and for, for a lot of, we stay there. And then, and then you, you discover that prayer is this thing where you're actually listening for God to speak. Uh, there's a famous interview with Mother Teresa and Dan Rather, um, right? Um, and Sky mentions this in his book, and, and Dan Rather had the tenacity to ask Mother Teresa, well, you know, what do you say to God when you pray? And she says, well, I don't, I listen. And Rather is like, what on earth? And so he's like, all right, um, well, what does God say to you? And you know what she said? He doesn't, he listens. <laughs> now Dan Rather is totally like, where do I go with this? And she says, look, if you don't understand this, I can't explain it to you because you're missing the whole boat, right? So, so there's this listening. And, and I can tell you, uh, so uh, when I take a, my God days or I'm outside, I tend to hear God with greater clarity outside. So I'm outside. I'm not necessarily telling God what he ought to do. And I do for a lot of you, trust me, you know, hey God, you need to do this for the so-and-sos. You need to come through, okay? So there's no end to me telling God what he ought to do. But then there are these parts where I'm just kind of, I'm listening for him to speak. And sometimes it's just 15 minutes. Sometimes it's like an hour and a half. And then finally, I've got a sense of something. I'm like, oh, oh, you wanted to say that? Okay. (laughs) Right? Then... Then there's even a, a kind of a level beyond that where um, it, it really is communion. It's, it's this, only instead of, uh, so God to us, us to God, and we're together. Um, the closest way I can to describe it is, I don't know if you've ever been standing on a dock on a lake and you've had a really good friend uh, you've maybe been out with your friends and your friend is standing there with you and you're admiring the sunset and everything else and you don't say anything and they don't say anything. You're just together standing on the dock, right? You're enjoying the presence of your friend. They're simply with you, okay? So, uh, so uh, mysticism, right? That's, I'm using that word, but that's, that's the word that egghead theolo- theologians and Catholics use to describe this 
connection, this withness with God. Now, there's another theme here, and that's the fruitfulness. And we Americans, we read this passage and we think, oh, be fruitful, got it. I'm going to do stuff for God and it's going to get results. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that really what Jesus means by fruitful? Go do stuff for him and get results? Uh, what's he say at the end there? Uh, you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh. <laughs> so we're not really getting the results anyway, are we? Okay, so fruitfulness in this context, we're fruitful when we remain in Jesus' love. We bear the fruit of righteousness when we obey his commands, and that obedience leads to our joy. And it also live, leads us to live a life of love because Jesus loves us. See, love is a, a fruit. Paul talked about it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, right? So fruit is this, fruit is the natural result of being with God. When you're with God, it has an effect in your life. You love people. You forgive freely. You are gracious. Are you catching this? So when you and I are with God, it, it, the natural effect, the fruit, it's not like we have to, oh, okay, I'm going to be fruitful now. It's not on us. It's simply our connectedness to God produces this thing in us that overflows in everywhere we are. Um, he continues, and look at all the remain in me, remain in me, remain in me, okay? Oh, we miss this so much in the church. We emphasize so many things, but, all right? Um, let me ask some questions. First of all, we've been covering a lot of God filters, right? Which of these God filters best represents how you've understood your spiritual life? That might be a good place to start. Because for some of us, our way of seeing God is a way that maybe isn't so biblical or isn't so helpful. Um, and again, if you think God operates this way and you do some bad things, you're not going to be sure you can trust God. Think of all the ways, like, you don't even need God in that one, right? And if God doesn't deliver what you've asked for, can you really count on him? And so a lot of these God filters... Ways of seeing God that aren't biblical or aren't helpful, they put us in this position with God where God becomes not as good as we say he is with our lips, but in our hearts, what we feel is that God is mean, capricious, out to get us, out to zap us. And when we feel that way about someone, we're not going to trust them. Think, for those of you that are married, come on, I'm speaking the truth, right? If you feel like your spouse is just going to come down on you hard and judge you all the time and step on you, in your heart, you're going to guard your heart against your spouse. You may say, I love you, honey, with your lips, but your heart, you're going to wall it off. And it's the same way with God, all right? So which of these God filters represents how you see God? And then would you say you're primarily seeking to use God to achieve some other desire? Or do you primarily desire God himself? And then, what or who has shaped your vision of who God is? Is your understanding of God primarily positive? Or is it primarily negative? That's another important one to ask, right? And figure out. So, again, as I've admitted, this, this has been a challenging series to make practical. 
all right? But here's my attempt today. There's a fellow named Pete, Peter Cascarzo. I'm just reading through his book and getting convicted about some things in my own life. Uh, but he suggests some helpful things about living a life with God. Uh, one is embrace the gift of slowing down, okay? Observe the Sabbath. Practice the art of silence and solitude. God is speaking regularly. It's just we don't hear him because we're busy, 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 you know, boom. You cannot live a life with God if you're going through life at warp nine all the time. If you're going through life at, all the time at warp nine, eventually Scotty's going to go, Captain, she's breaking apart. <laughs> and you're going to go, do it more, more, more. And then pew, the crack appears on the wind. You know, it's bad, okay? So embrace the gift of slowing down. We're bad about silence and solitude in this culture. We always have a screen or something that's kind of uh, flooding our mind. But when we're alone with ourselves, we can begin to know ourselves and know God. Right? Uh, embrace the gift of anchoring your identity in God's love. Uh, again, I'm convinced most Americans, most Americans believe things about themselves on this side of the list. I'm a mistake, I'm a burden, I'm not, or I can't make mistakes. If I mess up, you know, that's terrible. Uh, I, if, if certain approve, people approve of me, uh, then I'll be okay. If my friends like me, then I'm okay. If I give a talk and everyone says, oh, it was a great talk, then it's okay, <laughs> right? These are all, that's not what God says in his word, right? Uh, it, and so on the right are some statements that are a little bit more biblically anchored. You know, I'm entitled to exist. It's good that I'm here. God made me. I have my own identity from God that's distinct and unique. I'm worthy of being valued and paid attention to. I'm entitled to make mistakes and not be perfect. Whew. Come on, some of us. I'm entitled to make mistakes and not be perfect. That's freedom. That's what that is right there. So when you and I have our identity anchored in God's love, it really enables us to live this life with God, right? If you believe that you're a mistake, you're a burden, etc., think of how that transposes to God. What is he responsible for? Did he make the mistake in making you? Is he messing up your life? You know. Okay, so the last way is embrace the gift of breaking free from illusions. Um, what do I mean by illusions? America is great about telling us what we need in order to have a successful life. Um, maybe it's a particular square footage in a home or a particular kind of career or title. Um, we like to think that if we accomplish this one big goal, well, if I were to just write this book, if I were to become teller of the year, finally, right, then I would be able to kind of rest and it would be okay because people would recognize, finally, you know, um, really? You'd be able to rest at that point. Um, we accumulate all this stuff, clothes, houses, cars, electronics and the funny thing is right we get it it's new and it's like oh and then the newness wears off and then that empty feeling is there it's like oh it's not doing it for me anymore i need the seven the eight the ten the thirteen or what you know okay so uh, our culture is full of illusions um we mistakenly believe that if we got the words of praise from a few more important people it would somehow be enough right these are all illusions um, one last practical thing here. Um, we'll see how this works. 
I used, so it's easy, if, if I were to draw a circle, right? Here's, here's your time, the time that you have in a, in a given week, right? And for most Americans, 15 to 18% is, is free. Um, this is when you can volunteer. This is where you can do stuff. This is, where, you know, you're not working. You're not doing the things you have to do. Um, so much of church in America and everything else is to get people to, to leverage this little slice of the pie for God. Do God activities. Get involved. Serve. Um, we churches, we're great at that. You know, uh, make a difference, et cetera, et cetera. And what if, what if in living life with God, it's not 15 to 18%, but it's 100%. What if, what if when you're doing your hair, God is with you? What if when you're making dinner, God is with you? His love for you is there and you're walking in that and that's creating freedom. Think of how the impact of relationships that you have, if this is the case. Uh, what if when you're uh, sleeping, walking the dog, studying for a test, hanging out with your friends, what if God is with you and you're with God? It would be a game changer. It would be a game changer. Um, I believe God cares about, God cares about this because he cares about you. What I do is not more valuable or important than what you do just because I'm a pastor, okay? We're all called to live a life with God a rich and satisfying life with God. If, if you could start walking in these pathways, when you live life this way, when you live life with God, your entire life becomes sacred. Your entire life becomes sacred, and suddenly you find yourself doing the very things that God himself is doing in the world. All right? Again, I, this... For some of you, you're going to be like major freak out from a sermon like this. If you want to talk about this, I will gladly uh, share a cup of coffee, water, whatever with you and talk about what this means, okay? I by no means have perfected life with God, but I want that rich and satisfying life with God. And when I find that I am with him and we're, I'm with God, God's with me, all of my relationships are better. Even when hard things come my way, it's not the end of the world. God is with me.